two. All right, guys, welcome to the 13th episode of the Mastery Podcast. I'm your host, Master Chris Malarkey, fifth degree black belt in traditional Taekwondo. And today I have a very special guest on the other side of my screen. Uh, before we do anything else or go any further, I'd like you to hit that like, follow, or subscribe button located somewhere on your screen so I can continue to keep bringing you this awesome content and these awesome guests. Um, without further ado, I have the author of many publications, uh, one which is dear to my heart, uh, Dilla Time, Mr. Dan Charna. Sir, welcome uh, to the Mastery Podcast. Thanks for having me here, man. It's a real honor. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. I can't say uh, how grateful I am to, to really have you. Um, I, I, I don't use that word grateful very often. This is a, a real, real opportunity. I got really, I'm really geeked for this interview. Um, I, uh, I know I've been kind of haunting, like kind of hunting you down for a little while to try to try to find a space and time for us to meet. And uh, I'm really glad that you met, met me here uh, at this time. So thank you very much once again. That's my pleasure. Um, you've done, you've really spent a, a, a career, I really admire your career. Um, you've spent um, a considerable amount of time um, in the journalism aspect, really kind of from what I've researched, spent a lot of time um, really focusing heavily on journalism with respect to the hip hop business via the Big Payback, um, which was published in 2010. You were the author of that. Um, and some other works, um, which also include uh, Mise en Place, I hope I said that correctly, mm -hmm. um, and 26, which is perfect, and uh, uh, the, uh, Work Clean, which is uh, published in 2016 by you, which I definitely want to touch on with you uh, later today. I, have, I think I have an interesting question for you. Um, and then, of course, uh, you're a professor, you teach a course at the Clive Davis Institute, um, recorded music uh, at the NYU Tisch School of the Arts. Um, and one of those courses is, is on Dilla, which is kind of cool. Um, so why Dilla? Why now? Why write about this guy? It's been since 2000, he passed away in 2006. Um, just to give you my sort of like context, I discovered Jay Dilla, James Yancey, uh, the legendary hip hop producer um, at Montclair State University in 2008. And I came across it on you uh, track on YouTube, um, and I literally heard something that made me stand up out of my chair in University Hall. I'll never forget it. Um, I had never heard anything like that uh, prior uh, to to you know click and play on that. So what's what is it about James Yancey, Jay Dilla that's so important? Well, I'm going to answer that question, but first I got to ask you, what was it that made you jump up on your chair? Do you know the song? Uh, I don't remember. That's funny. I don't remember the song. I just remember the feeling of what I was getting from the music, which, you know, up until that point in time, we're I'm just out of high school. I graduated um, high school 2006, um, you know, literally two years into my halfway through my, you know, uh, collegiate experience at Marquette State. And uh, I just remember browsing, looking for something. I was typing something. I was writing a paper and I just remember clicking on something that said Jay Dilla. And um, I'd never heard of that name before. And I heard something that just, I don't know, it made me very emotional, uh, if that makes any kind of sense. Um, and I feel totally comfortable saying that I was, you know, totally captivated by just the, uh, I guess, the, the, the polyrhythmic sounds. And um, I'm not necessarily a musical technician, so I don't have that um, vocabulary per se, but 
I do um, remember very much how I felt. And uh, I literally closed my laptop um, and I went home for the rest of the day and just started going down the YouTube hole uh, with Dilla stuff. And I was just completely blown away. And mm. uh, yeah, that's how, that's how I'm here today. Well, it makes a lot of sense. And you asked me why Dilla, why now? Yes. Um, well, it starts with that. It starts with the 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 miraculous, unexplainable, mystical reactions and relationships that people have to Dilla and his music. I began teaching at NYU in 2013, and I'm teaching 18, 19, 20-year-olds. And these are folks who at the time, uh, you know, they, they uh, Dilla <laughs> was, you know, he died when they were two or three years old, right? Right. right. Uh, or something like that. Uh, uh, well, let me see. Am I, do I have my years wrong? Um, yeah. No, they died when, when uh, you know, maybe the, when they were 12 or 13, right? At that time. I really did have my years wrong. There. <laughs> uh, but and that's that's very young. Right? right. And I'm like, how do you all have this relationship with Dilla? How do you even know? who he is and that that relationship only grew stronger over the years with each distinct class so i had my own history with dilla uh coming from the record business right. uh, you know i heard him along with everybody else in 1995 when he produced running for the far side right. sort of that very auspicious beginning but i actually had a chance to work with him in 1999 when an artist of mine and i went to detroit for the first time um, to work, do, do a couple songs with him. Right. Um, and yet he had sort of that same effect on me. So I started teaching a little unit on Dilla in my pop music history course. And then from there, uh, I began to teach an entire course on Dilla because again, that relationship was really strong. And in putting together this, course on Dilla, I realized there wasn't really a lot for folks to read about him that was musically accurate that I thought really, really got to why this guy is not only so emotionally resonant, but why he's had such a big musical impact. People didn't have the language, people didn't have the 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 perspective or the conception. And, you know, I, I, there was something burning in me uh, that basically, you know, I felt I did. Um, and the reason I felt that is that, you know, when people would talk about Dilla, they would always talk about, oh, he has a great feeling, like that Dilla feel, yes. especially when they talk about his rhythms. Yes. But nobody was talking about what that was. Right. They were saying things like, well, he, he just didn't, he did, he just didn't quantize, which means to basically, play freehand on your machines right. to deactivate the, the rigid time grid of the machines. Right. And that is one of the things he did, one of the techniques, but that doesn't say why he's important. Why he's important is what he used those techniques for, which is to create literally a third time field. We had two time fields in our popular music for about a hundred years, straight time, which comes to us from, the European uh, tradition, which is counting beats evenly 
than swing time, which is the American and African-American tradition, which is uneven beats, lopsided beats. Right. And the continuum between, you know, straight and swung. But what Jay Dilla did around uh, 1998, 1999, was he found a way on an MPC drum machine to collide straight and swung rhythms simultaneously, putting them in conflict with each other. And we did not have a name for this time field. And people were calling it, you know, Dilla swing or Detroit swing. It's not swing. <laughs> it's the combination of straight and swung. It's 3D swing, if you will. Uh, and it needed a name and he needed recognition for it. So that was the, that was the genesis for Dilaton. Gotcha. Um, what was your, what was your influence? I'm curious to separate the man from the machine. I, I, I'll give you some more context. I read the book um, and I also listened to the audio, um, which surprisingly felt very different. Um, reading it by yourself and, you know, you know, dog earing the pages like I do as an English major and then uh, returning to life and then coming back to the book. And then um, was, it was such a big uh, juxtaposition to then have the audio version uh, where you narrated beautifully, um, or the orator, the, the you're an awesome orator. Um, it you. was, it was, it was like sometimes I listened to the book falling asleep, and it was like therapeutic to like hear how in depth you went with the research because you spent four years, from what I read, researching, doing interviews, talking to people, his mother. Um, mm -hmm. I down, you've uh, been privy to me speaking with uh, house shoes as well. Um, in a prior interview that we did um and it was just like i had never actually encountered a book like this even in an audio format which you know i'm typically not a fan of there was a specific thing you did which was separating dilla right from james and what he was to the music world and who he was to the people that were around him that knew him best and didn't necessarily revere him per se uh, as a legend and as he is but really just know him as a friend like like shoes does you know it's just like hey that was my good friend that made really amazing shit you know so <laughs> it was um it was a, a, a question i had for you i was curious about what made you um go into depth and go in that direction uh what was important about that to the process of this book interesting i I conceived it a little differently. I conceived it first as this sort of little science book about music. But as a reporter, once I start reporting, it's very hard for me to turn that impulse off. Right. So one question leads to two, two leads to four, four leads to eight. One interview leads to two, leads to four, leads to eight, right? Right. So <laughs> within a year, I've already done 100 interviews. You know, there are certain questions I, I can't like, you know, what what was his first relationship? Right. Right. Uh, with a woman. What uh, what was his time at Davis High School? Like who were his friends there? Um, did his father really ghostwrite that spinner song? It's a shame. Right. Right. right All right. of these sort of unanswered questions that as a reporter. You are compelled to follow. So the book became essentially a multi-track. It became a track of uh, music, musical science, right? Musical right. rhythm, uh, the, 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 
the story of how rhythms evolve and his place in that, um, the story of music making machines as well. And then the other track, which is the biographical track of the people who, from, from whence he came and the people around him and then the people who came after him. Right. And I think, I guess one of the reasons I kept them somewhat separate is that they are sort of separate. They, yeah. you know, I, I need to be able to talk about Roger Lynn. Right. But Roger Lynn never met Dilla. Yeah. And yet these two men are inextricably linked. Right. Even if Lynn himself doesn't really understand, you know, the impact that his own machine had or the impact that Dilla had. Right. It's still important. Was 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 approaching and it's it's so great because I talk about humanizing people be really because I had read a book um, uh, about uh, Bruce Lee um, about let's say about a year and a half ago and obviously you know I have a, um, a large martial arts background it's practically um, my life and um, I spent a large time large chunk of my time teaching um, and practicing and you come across um, many different philosophies, um, many different uh, belief systems about how to move. And although we all have one skeleton, there's essentially so many different ways we can express. I always like to say we express technique. We don't do technique. Um, mm. There are two different ways of, of looking at that. And I think the right instructor will be able to take you different places. Because um, hey, I, I, I appreciate that. Um, but going back to the Bruce Lee book, uh, which was written by Matthew Polly. Um, I had never read something in my life, even as an English major, with all the time I spent reading books, um, and I'm an avid reader, I had never read something that really delved into the human aspect of the icon or celebrity in question. Um, I learned so much about Bruce Lee being, you know, just we know he's a legend and what he's a legend for, but a lot of what was missing um, over my years was, I had many questions was, you know, what was he like though? Cause mm -hmm. him doing martial arts is not who he is. Who is the man behind sort of this, um, facade per se, right? This, um, this icon, this, uh, cultural icon, this, um, philosopher, this martial artist who no one ever really got down to it. Um, and he died so young, but I think about the same age Dilla was, um, if I'm not mistaken, mm. about 32 years old. So I kind of made a little bit of a connection. This is where you come in. And when I read this book um, and I listened to it, I almost listened to it immediately after um, obsessively. It was like, I'm reading, it's like he's doing the same thing that Matthew Polly was, but in a completely different direction. Um, so I was stricken by how, in depth you got um, with really developing sort of this web of James, right? Like this, he's linked to, like you said, even though this person may not have met James, they are linked and connected to him. You hit it like right on the head. Um, and I was like, well, how is that possible? And then you go into this like sort of, you know, beautiful chapter about how that's actually possible down to the specifics. So I guess then the question is, like how arduous were these interviews <laughs> to do and how, how hard was it in the process of you, um, you know, collecting all this data? How hard was it for you to piece sort of James' life together 
uh, to kind of get what you got out of the book. Mm. Well, you know, on the one hand, the interviews themselves are, are you know, they're like breathing to me. Yes. Yes. Uh, I uh, it's it's getting the interviews, establishing the relationships, establishing the trust. Right. That's harder. Um, I was lucky that I had a relationship with Maureen Yancey, his mother, yes. where she was willing to sit for a few interviews early on. Um, and she had been very loquacious with other interviewers as right. well. So there was a, a great amount of information out there. Um, and I was lucky that uh, his aunties and his uncles and other people and his family spoke. I think his inner circle of friends and collaborators were the most difficult to mm. get because they were the ones who felt, again, in Dilla world, um, there has been a lot of mercenary behavior. And so yeah. his true friends are somewhat uh, reticent, you know, yeah. suspicious uh, yeah. to, you know, share their thoughts because they're not sure really the direction how they're going to be presented. Yeah. And so it just took time. Uh, and you know, you do, you have a little conversation and then you share a bit of what you wrote, right? right. So that people can understand this isn't some magazine article or right. some sensational tell-all. It's, you know, for, I think for somebody like Frank Bush or Derek Harvey, you know, his two yep. longest friends. Yeah. It's, it's not just about tell me what Dilla did, right? right? <laughs> it's about tell me what, you did what was your childhood like you right. know i want to know not just about dilla i want to know about frank bush and 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 norma bush and i want to know about Derek harvey and his mother janice harvey i want to know about his brothers i want to know how you know Derek came up as a dancer right. um all that stuff is important because this is it's a fugue it's a web like you you said Yes. And um, that's actually how life really is. So I, I guess the interviewing was easy. It was harder. You know, I think there's a lot of anxiety for me about, you know, will people like Q-tip talk? Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> you know, mostly they did. Yeah. Which is great. Uh, and for the folks who didn't talk, I reported around them enough. Gotcha. that it didn't matter. And I don't mean I don't mean to be very flippant about it. I mean, this is what a reporter is supposed to do. So right. I never spoke to Jay-Z for my book, The Big Payback. Right. But I reported around him in tight, tight, tight circles. Got so it. I got the most important part of his story. Um, would it have been a different book had I spoken to Jay? Yeah, sure. But um, I think it didn't affect the larger story I wanted to tell. Gotcha. It's um, that's a, an interesting um, perspective too, because I wonder if Dilla was alive today, if, you know, how he would feel, you know, based on what I read about how he was so background um, and, you know, quiet and to himself, um, how he would feel looking at, you know, what you wrote. I'm sure that's kind of come across your mind and I wanted to sort of ask you that, what do you, do you think that um, you uh, 
did him justice in that sense and his family would I I certainly got the, the 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 gist that this was I really want to tell you you did something for me that I never thought was going to happen um and I think I'm probably part of a a larger group of people in the fan base um that were looking for um more information if that makes sense um mm-hmm. like just all right so I got this guy that makes really really different stuff but now you know what really what really got me um was you go through all of this you know this catalog of music and then you realize the guy's dead and it's like no 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 like i need more of i need more of this person um Mm -hmm. so you just go and continue going down the rabbit hole i put as many people as i could put on this and i still to this day say there's nobody making anything like this for the next hundred years period so like Mm -hmm. When you when you put this culmination of of things together, it was so well done. Um, I read books all the time. This was like one of the most enjoyable reads I've ever had. It's like top three, I would have mm. to say. And it's not number three, and it may not even be number two. Um, it really was like you know when you go and explore a subject, and then you go try to find publications on it. Not you're not always satisfied with it, right? Like you may find someone that has, you know, expresses, you know, an opinion of theirs and it may not be like the best, put the best way. This was, this seemed like completely objective, um, but it really put you in the story. It kind of like put me back in kindergarten, like using your imagination as you're reading, you could walk almost alongside these characters, right? Who are actual people like Frank Nid and all these other cats from, you know, Slum Village and Conan Gardens. Um, like you could almost imagine what it's like. And then and other parts of the book, you don't even have to imagine it because you've got maps and um, you have the the audio versions of it where you're able to actually hear some of the the distinct um, musical approaches to it. So you break that down. What was that like bringing the musical um, terminology into it? Did you feel like you were going to lose people by being that specific or? Um, I think it was always a concern, but yeah. remember, I'm a teacher. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And it's my job to, and I, I think I'm I'm good at my job of explaining complex things to the uninitiated. Gotcha. So one thing I knew that I couldn't do is use musical notation because musical notation is for the initiated. Right. You have to know what those notes and staves mean in order to read them. Gotcha. So I had to find another way to really visually portray rhythms and uh my colleague at the clive davis institute at nyu jeff parrots he had been uh, a confidant uh, somebody who i had bounced ideas off of when i first you know initially started doing my dilla time lecture at uh you know in my pop music class i did like this weird little drawing that wasn't necessarily about musical you notation at all. Right. And Jeff, you know, he taught his students rhythms using a simple grid. Mm. And I thought that was pretty brilliant because it also corresponds to the way that we program machines. Mm-hmm. So with his help and guidance and input and analysis, uh, you know, we used his visual language uh, to illustrate the rhythmic concepts in the book. And so, you know, if you, <laughs> there, like, there's, you, there are people who are doing sort of, uh, 
doctoral dissertations on these rhythms and, you know, uh, Ann Danielson, who I mentioned in the book, a uh, 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 Scandinavian musicologist, she uses spectrographs and things like that. And you, you can't look at that stuff and know right. what's going on. Right. But we understand boxes. Yes. We understand grids. So that was the key to being able to create a pedagogy of rhythm, a basic pedagogy of rhythm for any reader, musical or not. I mean, look, it's still intimidating to some people. Yeah. It's never not going to be, you know, my father, <laughs> you know, I, I, I aspire to write the kind of hip hop book that my parents can can read. But, you know, my dad got stopped on that page with the polyrhythm because he was trying to do it. Right. Himself. Tapping, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, tapping out a two a, a two rhythm on his on, on the right leg and a three rhythm on the on the left. And. You know, I think there are some people who will get stopped by it because that's just, you know, in their nature. Right. But I I am glad that folks seem to really understand it. And also I use the map, you know, the map of Detroit is a metaphor yes. for this idea of conflicting rhythms. Yes. Um, so and conflicting architecture, right? Like you yes. know, how it was built, you know, it was really, yeah, it was great. Yes. Mm. Um, it was it was uh, it was really fascinating that part uh, just having that to accompany you um, in in the book. I feel like you were like really innovative in that uh, in that regard. Um, and it was cool. I definitely did get lost. I won't lie to you. I'm a master of martial arts, but I did get a little. I was like, hold on a second, let me. And it was actually difficult to do some of that stuff. I was like, all right, so you got this guy that mastered this. So like you know he's doing this in you know practically record time. You know solving like you know. I guess what would be the equivalent? I heard uh, Questlove, who's uh, my favorite drummer of all time, mm -hmm. say uh, something about, it was on the Red Bull. I think you know what I'm talking about, having to talk. And he said, it was like, you know, Dilla doing something uh, with one of the beats he was putting together. It was like solving a 10,000 piece puzzle in record time. And then that made sense to me. Um, and I was like, well, that's just kind of why he's there. But I wanted to inform audiences really of like why he's, um, why I'm spending so much time talking about it. So I spoke to House Shoes and I'm talking to you. It's kind of sort of like an investigative thing for me. Um, I spent a couple of, spent hours, you know, obviously reading the book, um, listening to the book. I wanted to know your thoughts on what, why is James, what was the most important thing that you uh, learned while you were in the process of interviewing and going in depth? Uh, did what you learned, you know, ultimately the, the most important thing that you learned about him um, sort of uh make was it a contrast to you know what you already knew or thought was important about him or hmm. well i don't know if there is a most important i think the thing that was most important to me is that i had a hunch gotcha and that what was most important is that that hunch played out right like i had a feeling no it was more than a feeling it was like a conviction right that just saying he didn't quantize, right? right that he played that freehand, that he was just some drummer who happened to play the drum machine was completely bogus. Right. And over the course of months and years, his friends and collaborators essentially co-signed that, you know, they, they, they validated it 
which was really important for me because I, you know, it was something that I, I just, it had to be true. Um, just from my own experience as a beat maker and a producer. And, you know, I have ears. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so, but there were other things that I learned that were really precious. Um, the details of his personal life with his ex-fiance, Joy. Yes. Uh, the details of his uh, relationship with Monica Whitlow. Um, the details of his relationship and sometimes lack thereof with his daughters. Right. Uh, the family stuff, the dynamics that helped to create him. Um, all of those things were super precious uh, to me. Beautiful. That's a, that's a great way to, great way to look at that. Um, and you did, you brought all of that sort of like full circle um, in the, in the book. It was really fascinating. Um, how did, I want to go back a little bit with you and rewind. How did um, work clean? I wonder if really, if, any of what you, the, the process of mise en place, right? Everything, putting everything in place. Um, did any of that come into play with how you observe James' process of working? Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, for the uninitiated reader, mise en place is, is an oral, uh, it's, it's a system of organization that is handed down orally in professional kitchens and has been around for about a hundred years and never was never really codified until right. I wrote Work Clean. And I spent, you know, two years in and out of professional kitchens and culinary schools, interviewing chefs and cooks and students and restaurateurs and trying to sort of codify the system into 10 distinct behaviors or ingredients or principles. Right. And in essence, mise en place is a way that people in the kitchen, but also outside the kitchen, can organize time, space, resources. Uh, and I'm sorry, you're hearing the, the no, rhythms okay. and sounds of Harlem, USA in the background. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, mise en place is how we approach our work. Uh, the and specifically about order, right? And right. James had routine and order. He had incredible structure, process, and structure. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so he would wake up in the morning, and the first thing he would do is he would clean, clean yeah. his studio with the feather duster, yeah. like sweep, clean. Yeah. Why was that important to him? Right. What did that do for him? Well, number one, it gave him time to listen, which was right. his bionic power and also a very important element of mise en place listening. Yes. So he would clean and sweep and dust while he listened and listened and listened. And at the end, he had a completely organized and, and uh, distraction-free workspace. And then a headspace that had had the time to sit with some new input and ideas. Right. And then his work schedule, you know, was somewhat regimented, although, yeah. you know, Questlove's experience of Dillo was probably very different from Frank's experience. And right. 
I'm sure he didn't always get up at 9 a.m., but the, I think the thing about Bill is that he was just compelled to be in the studio and he did have ways of doing things, um, going regularly to Crate Dig at different record stores. He just made it a priority, right. listening to things in different ways. And also the mise en place of trying new techniques because that was also very important to him. Yes. Um, and then, you know, writing the book, I had to have my own mise en place. I had to have my own ways. And there were things that I didn't structure well and sort of did on the fly. Like my timeline was not neat to look at it right. because my mind was all over the place. I just couldn't get <laughs> the right information. And, you know, I, 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 I was so... Um, geared towards forward movement that I didn't feel it would be quite worth the time to spend making sure that every entry in the timeline was aligned and in the same font and things like that. But what I did do was, you know, I made sure whenever I did an interview to notate, to take, to, to make sure to back up my material. Right. Um, I had a mise en place of writing uh, you know, am I going to do 500 words today, a thousand words today? And if I feel like I can't even do my 500 words, maybe I need to spend the day collecting more information, doing deeper research. So it required a kind of flexibility that I think comes from mastery. Yes. Um, you know, a, a, a and when I mean, when I say mastery, I mean practice. Right. Um, because something, things that look, oh, here's another thing, right? Uh, not to interrupt my own thought, but go for it. You know, James was able to create beats in lightning fast with lightning fast speed. Like, oh man, he just came to the drum machine. 15 minutes, he composed a, a complete beat. Like that was the signature James Yancey way of making a beat. Right. And it seemed miraculous to people. But how he got there was practice. Right. Because he would go over to DJ Head's house with Frank, with proof, and he would do these beat making context contests, these beat Olympics yes. where really? your opponent gives you a set of records and you have to make a beat in five minutes. Yes, I remember reading well, this. Yeah, well, you do that for enough time. You know, as a martial artist, the power of repetition yes. uh, creates muscle memory, creates mastery. And so he seemed almost superhuman. Could bend the rules, so to speak, right? Like in, in a sense, because it's like the more you know, the less, which is, I think, key here, bringing the martial arts over to music, right? Where we intersect um, when you talk about mastery um, is the, you can really be, the more you know, the less you need to use. Yeah. In a sense. Um, you know, I, I know a bunch of techniques, but I don't need to use, they're all not pragmatic per se. Mm -hmm. right? I just know, okay, well, if this, if what I have in mind kind of doesn't want it doesn't really work out or James says if uh, what I was listening to, cause he was listening to this stuff in his head prior to like, it was almost like he was pushing his ability to push out of his head and put it into the instruments was his superpower, right? Yep. Almost like it's in his nervous system, right? Like I've already heard it to myself, I'm humming it to myself. Now, how do I get, how do I translate that out? Um, I think that was really where his superpower 
um, really was. Yeah. I want to. I want to. And wait, before you move on, you just said something that's really important. Sir. You said nervous system, and I often say this just about my own tools. Like, I don't skimp on my computer or my phone because right. my computer and my phone, because of what I do is an extension of my nervous system. Yes. And for James, he spent so much time with his machines that they became an extension of his nervous system. And he had such a finely tuned nervous system that he was able to get more out of his machines than anybody else, than most of us. Yes. Can I interrupt you right here? Because you was about to kick me off. It says for some reason, I'm going to end this meeting and I'll come back. So this will be like our part one and I'll get you, I'll go, I'll go right back in and sign in and I'll meet you there. Okay. Can we use the same link? Oh, yes, sir. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Thank you. 